right, so Pastor Farrell, as you guys heard this morning, is in Houston, where he's been preaching, and he's on his way back, or I guess he probably will be tomorrow, I don't really know his itinerary, uh, but you have me tonight, um, so we'll just take some time to really hammer out some of the things we learned last week. We won't actually be covering new material, so that's why you don't have a handout. Uh, we'll just be touching on some of those things. But first, let's just spend some time reviewing where we have been in the series. We started out really kind of for the first half, talking about various aspects of interpretation, or we could say steps in interpretation, pieces in the interpretation process. We talked about things like determining the genre, identifying the theme and the purpose, determining the structure of the book. Usually we think of that like an outline, um, and where the text being studied fits into that structure. Determining the historical context or setting, you know, things like who wrote it, to whom did he write it, um, what was the reason, what was the context, you know, of the, both the recipients and the one writing and sending. Uh, studying important cultural background matters. I think we talked a bit about things like in John 4, what were Jewish weddings like and how might that illuminate the text. Uh, studying the far and near contexts. By that, we mean literary context within the book, both like the near context right around it, like within the paragraph, but then also more generally in the book. And then also uh, performing word studies. So we started out by just examining these various aspects that really apply to any genre of Scripture. We want to do these things. And then in the second half, we've been considering things unique to specific genres. And we began with parables, and dealt with narrative, and then last week um, dealt with prophetic literature. So uh, we're just going to continue fleshing that out tonight. But first of all, let's go back to some of those considerations related to the prophetic genre. Um, as you know, Pastor Farrell covered the handout for Lesson 11, uh, dealing with the principles for studying the prophetic genre. Um, and then I've also found helpful in terms of setting my expectations when reading uh, prophetic texts, uh, this, this paradigm. Think about Old Testament prophets in particular as covenant lawyers. Covenant lawyers. So, of course, God gave various covenants, but one of the biggest ones to which prophets are continually bringing the people back is the Mosaic Covenant, where we find, which we find primarily in Exodus and Deuteronomy, but also pieces of it in Leviticus and Numbers. And so they're kind of like lawyers who are continually evaluating the people in light of those covenant expectations. Usually they just essentially repeat the blessings and curses of the covenant, sometimes with a little more specificity due to the added revelation they receive as prophets. So if the covenant would say that you do these things and curses will come upon you, well, the, the covenant even gets a little more specific. It gives like these progressions of curses that will come upon them. And it might say, you know, the, the final one, you will go into exile. Well, then the prophets might, much closer to that time, say specific nations will be taking you into exile. So under divine inspiration, they're bringing greater specificity. Uh, but same thing with the blessings. They will promise if you will repent and do what the Lord has called you to do, then certain blessings will come upon you. He will deliver you from the impending judgment. Um, so in light of this, just two things, in light of this role, their role as covenant lawyers, uh, number one, we shouldn't expect all prophetic texts 
to be dealing with the future, foretelling the future. In fact, most prophetic texts actually don't, aren't, aren't focused on foretelling what's going to come in the future. And then secondly, when they are doing that, let me go back. So in that first one, the reason you shouldn't simply expect it to be foretelling what's going to come is because their role isn't simply telling what's in the future, but calling them back to the covenant and reminding them of that. In many ways, you could think of them as appliers of the covenant in that particular context. They're saying, look, you're violating the covenant in these ways, and you need to repent of that. Secondly, when foretelling what will happen in the future, when they do that, we need to keep in mind that it has an ethical goal. It has an ethical goal, not primarily aimed at instructing us, but because of that role as covenant lawyers, it primarily, that foretelling primarily has an ethical goal, meaning to encourage the people to abide by the covenant, and either threatening punishment or promising reward. Does that make sense? Any questions related to that? All right. Also, Pastor Farrell last week explained that apocalyptic is essentially a subgenre of prophetic. Remember that? Apocalyptic, essentially a subgenre of prophetic, which is exactly right. Um, Here's an explanation of the differences that I found helpful, because the content of the two, um, let me say it this way, apocalyptic can often be a bit unique in its purpose, and pretty consistently unique in its purpose. So one way I would compare them is normal prophetic texts, by that I mean non-apocalyptic prophetic texts, are generally aimed at calling the unfaithful to repent. So it's aimed at those who are breaking the covenant, those who are wayward, calling them back to the covenant. On the other hand, apocalyptic texts are generally aimed at encouraging the faithful in the midst of difficulty to persevere in trusting the Lord and living faithfully. So if you were to compare really kind of any text from Jeremiah or Ezekiel, they're largely aimed at the unfaithful nation and telling them the judgments that's coming. Yes, they often look beyond that and say God's not ultimately giving up on you despite the judgment coming and gives them sort of a, tells them what's going to be coming, how the Lord's going to restore them in the long run. Think about how Ezekiel ends. But nonetheless, it's aimed at an unfaithful nation and calling them to repent. Whereas take a book like Daniel that really is written pretty much about the same time Ezekiel is, and yet it's aimed at the faithful, encouraging them to persevere in the midst of difficulty. And that seems to be pretty consistent. So when we get to Revelation, which is primarily apocalyptic, again, we see a similar sort of thing. They're to encourage the faithful to persevere in that faithfulness. I have found that general distinction to take me a long way in in understanding those books. So having laid out some principles for interpreting prophetic texts, we will this evening take a look at a particular prophetic text, um, In this case, also one that is apocalyptic. And the text we're going to pick up is one that's vital to a particular eschatological debate, namely the timing of the millennium. And that text is Revelation chapter 20. In some ways, illustrating these principles with a text that that is less hotly debated could be a little bit more beneficial because we don't have all of these theological questions in our mind. We're able just to kind of study the text but the benefit of something that is much more debated is more likely to keep you engaged. Also, 
uh, since it's closely related to the theological questions related to the millennium, um, and some of you may not be familiar with those issues involved, we're going to spend some time just talking more generically about what are the different positions, not simply kind of assuming you know that and uh, just walking verse by verse through the text. And first of all, as a bit of a caveat, um, I do hold to what's called premillennialism. That's also what the church holds to. Um, people, you don't have to hold to that to be a member of this church. That is our official position per the Constitution, and um, everyone has to be willing to submit to that, come under that, but that's not something, I mean, you're welcome to ask questions from a different perspective as we work through this. Um, but despite the fact I hold that view, I'm going to try to be as charitable as I can to other views. I don't want to misrepresent other views. I want to um, even present their arguments as fairly as I can. Um, but I'm saying on the front end, because in the midst of trying to present their arguments fairly, you might mistake my position. Um, but I do hold to the premillennial position. Also, we have some books out at the book nook that if this is interesting to you, you might want to pick up. Um, the first two here are by Matt Waymeyer. Matt Waymeyer is actually, he was a professor at the Master Seminary and then came to the Expositor Seminary um, and teaches classes on ecclesiology and eschatology there. Um, so one is this very short book here called Revelation 20 in the Millennial Debate. Revelation 20 in the Millennial Debate and really just walks through some of the stuff we're going to talk about tonight, but in much more detail. Uh, this is fairly basic, not super technical, but does kind of cover all the major issues. A second one is kind of on the other end of the spectrum, a bit more technical. This one's called Amillennialism in the Age to Come, a premillennial critique of the two-age model. Um, so a much more thorough, complete, technical uh, treatment of amillennialism and its shortcomings. And then here is something that goes beyond Revelation 20 alone, to deal with premillennialism more broadly, but not with the same level of technicality from this book. So this is a short little explanation of premillennialism generally by Michael Flock, um, called Premillennialism, Why There Must Be a Future Earthly Kingdom of Jesus. So it's another, another helpful book. So we have multiple copies of those uh, out there at the book nook, and I, I intentionally ordered some this past week, but I didn't order a whole lot. In the age of Amazon Prime, it doesn't make sense to stock up too much. So if we do run out, um, just let me know, and we'll be sure to order some more, and they'll be here before next week. All right, so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 20. So just to orient you generically to the debate here, at one level, the future might seem fairly simple. Christ returns, all people are resurrected and judged, and then a new creation is inaugurated with God's people living in that new creation and the rest being cast into the lake of fire. Seems pretty straightforward. We often imagine that when Christ returns, the end's pretty much there and there's not much more left. Surely the new creation must be coming right after it. Uh, but it may not be that simple. The premillennial view holds that between the coming of Christ and the eternal state, or the new creation, there will be an era that's generally thought to be a thousand years. I say generally thought because it being a literal thousand-year period is not necessarily essential to premillennialism. Premillennialism is really focused on this period existing between 
Christ's return, and the new creation. And um, at the beginning of this thousand-year period, Satan will be bound and kept in prison, according to the premillennial view, for the whole of that thousand-year period. Believers will be resurrected, and Christ, as well as resurrected believers, will reign as kings on earth during that thousand-year period. And at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released. He will deceive many, um, leading them to come against the camp of the saints, is how Revelation presents it, to attack. But fire from heaven will fall on them, destroy them, and then the rest will be resurrected. There will be the final judgment and then the new creation. So it's not primarily, as I mentioned earlier, about whether or not the millennium will be exactly a thousand years or some other length, but whether or not there will be this time slot between the coming of Christ and the new creation. So why would a premillennialist hold to that position? Why would they seemingly complicate what could, could be a bit more simple by adding this whole other period of time, this era, into there between Christ's coming and the new creation? We can categorize it generally into two groups, two reasons. Number one, because of Revelation 20. Revelation 20, in my estimation, and we're going to walk through the text, seems pretty clearly to require that. Um, That's what will happen. There will be this additional period of a kingdom before the new creation. And secondly, some Old Testament prophecies seem to expect a period of time during which the Messiah is ruling on earth, and, which is much better than the present age, but falls a bit short of the perfection of the new creation. And the millennium of Revelation 20 seems to fit that, fit into that expectation pretty well. So those would be the two primary reasons. Number one, Revelation 20. Number two, the Old Testament seems to expect something like this, something short of the new creation, but better than the current period during which Christ is reigning on the earth. So let's take a look now at Revelation 20. It's a short chapter of only 15 verses, so just follow along as I read. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss in a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of all those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. 
The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So as we come to this, Let's first consider the context. If we're asking, when does this happen? When is this thousand-year period? Um, The first question to ask is the context. Before we do that, let me just kind of generally orient you to some different ways to view the timing of this. The premillennialist would say, well, chapter 19 presents the second coming of Christ, and chapters 21 and 22 present the new heavens and new earth. Here's a thousand years in between seems pretty clearly to require that thousand-year kingdom between the coming of Christ and the new heavens and new earth. And so, in their estimation, Christ isn't bound now. It's the premillennialist perspective. But during the thousand years, he will be bound until the very end when he's released to deceive. Also, at the beginning of that time, you have these believers being resurrected so that they will reign on the earth for a thousand years along with Christ. And it's at the end of that, Satan's released, deceives people, brings them against the saints, they're destroyed, and then you have the final judgment. At that point, resurrected are uh, the rest of the dead, those who weren't believers, and they will be judged, and then the new heavens and new earth is brought in. So that's how the premillennialist position would understand it. The amillennialist position, and let me just clarify that, technically amillennialism would mean no millennium, but... Uh, Really, they, they essentially believe that there's no period of time after Christ's coming during which he reigns on the earth. Not that he's not reigning at all. So um, Jay Adams, who, who's an amillennialist, advocates for this uh, label realized millennialism. I'm trying to make sure I'm getting that right. I think that's right. Realized millennialism is what uh, Jay Adams calls it. In the sense that right now, being realized presently, Christ and the saints are reigning. So it's currently happening, not at a time after his coming. Now, within the debate, there's generally a third view called post-millennialism, but it has very few adherents, and in many ways it's quite similar to the amillennial position, at least kind of in the way I look at the core issues. So I'm going to leave that one off the table. So it keeps it simple. Also, I should say that within premillennialism, there are a variety of sub-details, it's like a historic premillennialist, a futuristic premillennialist. I'm not going to get into those details. That just, they're important, but it, it complicates matters more. So just primarily focused on the premillennial versus the amillennial perspectives. 
So I, I kind of oriented you to the general explanation of amillennialism, but as they come to this passage, they're generally going to understand that this is again referring to the present period, we may call the church age, that Satan's bound during Christ's first coming. Satan's bound and thrown into the pit during Christ's first coming, um, and he's not able to deceive the nations in the sense that the gospel's now going forward to the Gentiles in a way it didn't previously, and it's going forward successfully. It's not being hindered. In that sense, Satan's been bound from his deceptive work. In the sense in which there's this resurrection with believers reigning during the present period, they differ sometimes on how they handle it, but a, a very common view is that after believers die during this present period, they go to heaven, and there they reign, right? Ephesians 1 talks about us being seated in heavenly places with Christ, and there they reign during this period. Not literally a thousand years, but just during this period between Christ's first and second comings. And then, when Christ finally returns, is when all the rest will be raised, will be the final judgment, and then you go into the new heavens and new earth. So essentially, there's no no added period between Christ's second coming and the new heavens and new earth. So with those two general views in mind, let's kind of work through some of the text with some of these hermeneutical principles. First, looking at the literary context, as I already mentioned, chapter 19 has the return of Christ. So it seems that this millennium falls after the coming of Christ. And then after it, chapters 21 and 22, is the new heavens and new earth. So it seems to fall right in between there, as the premillennialist understands it. So, how, how else would someone understand it? Well, they would look at the whole book. The amillennialist would look at the whole book of Revelation, and they would say that what we find in the book is not a consistent chronology, in the sense that it's consistently progressing, where you move just continually moving forward in time throughout the whole book, they would say you see these recursive patterns where it's sort of more cyclical. It will cover the whole period between Christ's first and second comings and then start over again. And most would say something like seven times. One of the most common advocates for this, or most often referred to, William Hendrickson in his commentary, More Than Conquerors, would present it that way. Seven sequences or seven cycles, each one going from his first coming to his second coming. So generally, they would say um, chapters 1 through 3, which are the letters, kind of cover the whole period between Christ's first and second comings. Chapters 4 to 7 would be that second cycle. 8 to 11, the third cycle. 12 to 14, the fourth cycle. 15 to 16, the fifth cycle. 17 to 19, notice this one. 17 to 19, the sixth cycle. So one cycle's ending with the coming of Christ in chapter 19. 20 through 22, another cycle. So in that way of thinking, each time you start a cycle over again, you go back to his first coming. So even though chapter 20 comes after chapter 19, they're saying, well, no, 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 chapter 19 is finishing one cycle, so it's kind of coming up to the second coming. Chapter 20, starting a new cycle, goes back to the beginning, to his first coming, to cover that period. So with the principles we've talked about, that literary context is very important. And however... I don't, I don't think that's the best way to understand Revelation, but we've got to admit that prophecy often works that way. Um, that's how many of the prophetic books work in somewhat of this cyclical pattern. But the question is, is that really what the text is saying? 
So that's a huge debate in interpreting Revelation, and we would easily go way beyond uh, 6.15 if we spent our time trying to sort that out. But I don't think that's the best way to understand it. If you have more questions about that, Pastor Farrell did recently preach all the way through the book of Revelation and explained it um, in the way I think is best, which is that it's kind of a consistently progressing chronology. So if that's the case, so notice how we're applying the principle of the larger literary context. If that's the case, then the context would seem to suggest that, yes, the premillennial position is correct, that Revelation 20 falls between the second coming and the new heavens and new earth. Um, So moving in now, that's kind of just the general context. Now let's focus in specifically to verses 1 through 3 and keep applying some of our hermeneutical principles. I'm just going to read those three verses again. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. First, just for the sake of applying our hermeneutical principles, which is the reason we're coming to this text, even though it's not necessarily relevant to the debate, notice how this dragon's referred to. What does it say? It modifies it. The dragon who is who? Yeah, in the serpent of old, right? So in terms of our hermeneutical principles and keeping in mind what we've been told previously in Scripture, um, what's the significance of that description that he's the serpent of old? Yeah, Genesis, the garden, that's right. Because the serpent's the one who caused all the problems in the beginning. And so now we see this, this dragon feature, dragon character, But really, John's just telling us he's the same old serpent. And then he goes on and tells us specifically who he is. He's the devil and Satan, uh, which is essentially to say the same thing. Satan is um, what we call like a transliteration of the Hebrew word, Satan. So it's basically the same word, and the devil is the translation of it into Greek. Think of how we might say, Emmanuel and God with us. One is simply putting the Hebrew, Emmanuel, into English letters. And the other one's actually translating it, God with us. So that's all that's happening here. Satan and the devil is essentially using his proper name, Satan, but then explaining who he is. He's this one who um, slanders. So that's just helping us remember those principles of looking at how these things have been explained in Scripture to explain what we're seeing here. Now, generally what we see here in terms of a summary is just that Satan's being bound and thrown into a pit where he's kept for a thousand years. So when does this happen? Uh, Well, again, according to the flow of Revelation, this would seem to be after the second coming. Another thing we might ask is, what does the rest of the New Testament teach us about Satan's current activity? Does, Does he seem during the current period to be bound? Doesn't seem to be. Um... Now, let me, again, I want to be fair. So the amillennials would be careful in how they describe this. They, they would say, well, notice that he's bound for the purpose of not deceiving the nations. Um, let me actually just read to you here. This is coming from Anthony Hokema, who's one of the foremost proponents of amillennialism. He says, the binding of Satan during the gospel age, by which he means this age, means that, first, he cannot prevent the spread of the gospel. 
And second, that he cannot gather all the enemies of Christ together to attack the church. He cannot gather all the enemies of Christ together to attack the church. So when defined that way, we'd have to admit that many of those other passages that talk about what Satan's doing currently, roaming about on the earth, seeking someone to devour, don't necessarily prohibit this, that he's simply being kept from fully preventing the spread of the gospel among the nations. Let me also, again, to be fair to them, flip with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. So here we're looking elsewhere in Scripture and saying, well, what else does Scripture teach about this same time period? How might we use other portions of Scripture to help us interpret this? And I'll come back to some of those specific passages that do, seem, that do teach us that Satan's currently quite active, but let's look at one that all millennialists would appear, appeal to to indicate that maybe he has been bound. So Matthew chapter 12, we find ourselves... Um, just in the middle of Jesus' ministry, and he's been, uh, let's see where to pick up here. Let's pick up with verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? In other words, we'll keep going, but in other words, if you're saying that I'm doing this by Satan, essentially, and I'm casting out demons, that doesn't make sense. I'm kind of going against myself, cutting off my own arm. Then he continues on, verse 27, If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Kingdom here just simply means the reign of God. God's manifested rule over the earth has come, meaning you're actually... God's actually doing something now. It's not just theoretically he rules over the earth, but you can actually see it being manifested in what's happening through his mediator, his son, Jesus. And then verse 29, Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? So that metaphor seems to suggest that with the coming of Jesus— He's, he's, we, what we see actually happening is he's releasing this demon-possessed man of the demon. And this metaphor then would seem to map to that by saying that he comes in and that strong man is Satan, who has possession of this demon-possessed man, and that he binds him so that he can release the demon-possessed man. Are you seeing there the, the logic of how this might suggest that in his first coming, Satan has been bound by Christ? So, uh, that's, that's helpful info. Again, I'm just trying to bring in, to you, bring in for you just what are the various things you want to be considering as you're interpreting this passage. And that is a relevant thing for us to be considering. Yes, certainly, at Christ's first coming, his ministry dealt a blow to Satan. And yes, there is in Matthew 12 a connection with the metaphor of binding. 
but it seems that the connection, meaning the reference to binding in each case, is maybe a bit superficial in light of this. Number one, what we see happening in Jesus' ministry here at this point does not seem to be nearly as exhaustive as what Revelation 21 to 3 describes. 21 to 3 of Revelation describes a a binding, a um, immobilization of Satan that's about as strongly stated as you could, right? He's bound, he's cast into this pit, it's closed, it's locked, it's sealed. If, if you wanted to say that Satan could do nothing more, I don't know how he could have more strongly stated it. So even though there is a link with the binding here, it seems very different than what we see happening here in Matthew. Also, it doesn't seem that it can be referring to the same thing in light of what we know from the rest of the New Testament about what, Jesus, sorry, about what Satan continues to do during this time period. And here I'm just going to uh, mention to you certain texts. Matt Wehmeyer in his book here has a helpful summary of a lot of those texts regarding the activity of Satan in the present age. I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to mention the reference and then summarize it for you. We see in Luke 22, 3, Uh, that he enters Judas and influences him to betray Christ. So at a time period after this Matthew 12 incident, he's still operating even among Jesus' disciples. Luke 22, Jesus tells Peter that he sought to sift Peter. Satan sought to sift Peter like wheat. In Acts 5, 3, Satan fills the heart of Ananias and influenced him to lie to the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Satan sends a messenger to buffet the Apostle Paul. In 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Satan thwarts Paul from traveling to Thessalonica. In Matthew 13.19 and Luke 8.12, Satan snatches the word of God from unbelieving hearers of the gospel before it can take root. It's a parable of the soils. John 8, Satan tells lies. Acts 26, he has unbelievers under his dominion. 1 Corinthians 7.5, he tempts believers. 2 Corinthians 2.11, Satan seeks to take advantage of believers. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Satan is called the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, he blinds the minds of the unbelieving. That's the same passage. 2 Corinthians 11.3, he seeks to deceive believers as he did with Eve. 2 Corinthians 11.14, he disguises himself as an angel of light. Ephesians 2.2, he's at work in unbelievers to influence them to live as they used to, uh, or as they do. Ephesians 6.11 and 12, he seeks to deceive believers as he battles against them. 2 Timothy 2.26, he deceives and traps unbelievers. 2 Timothy 2.26, he holds unbelievers captive to do his will. 1 Peter 5.8, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 John 3.8 and 2.10, he is the father of those who practice sin. 1 John 5.19, he holds unbelievers in his power. I'll skip the Revelation passages because according to the all-millennial interpretation, those would all be, um, they would understand those a bit differently than we would, so... Uh, probably isn't fair to their view. So, in light of all of those, 
It does seem hard to imagine that what Revelation 20, 1 through 3 says, this complete binding of him, is actually happening. And then there are other passages that actually Matt Wehmeyer in this book goes through that, to show that this pit, when other, other beings go to this pit, the understanding is they can do nothing. Like, they're, they're confined there, and they aren't able to do anything else on the earth. And so uh, the fact that he continues to be roaming about seems to be directly contrary to that. So, conclusion, in my estimation about how we should understand Revelation 21 to 3 and this binding of Satan in terms of its timing, applying the hermeneutical principles we've been learning, is that it will be, this whole period of the binding of Satan, will be a time in the future after the return of Christ, both because of its place in the flow of the book, comes after the return of Christ, before the new heavens and new earth, and because what it says about Satan does not fit with what the rest of the New Testament uh, says about his activity during the period prior to his second coming. Next, we won't spend quite as long on this next portion, but look at verses 4 through 6. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years." So here we see a reference to a resurrection, and then they reign. And as I mentioned, the premillennial position would understand this to happen after Christ's coming. Believers being resurrected, and during this thousand-year period, they're reigning over the earth with Christ. The amillennialist, needing to understand this as being a part of the church age, again, they, they just kind of two different approaches, but the most common one, let me give you the, the less common one first, they would say that, um, this, this coming to life is a spiritual resurrection. And indeed, that's not a totally foreign category. Scripture does use resurrection metaphors for regeneration, that you're coming to life in some sense. So they would say they come to life. Um, the other way to understand it, and that fits better with the whole idea of sitting on thrones and ruling, is that this is actually after believers during the present age die, and they go to the intermediate state, meaning it's not yet the the full new heavens and new earth. It's where Christ currently is, and they reign there along with him. That's how they would understand it. Um, but, again, just applying the principle of near context, verse 4 talks about them being raised, them coming to life and reigning with Christ. But look at verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So if that refers to a spiritual resurrection, meaning a regeneration, that's kind of hard to, to fit with verse 5, where it talks about these unbelievers coming to life, because surely the unbelievers aren't going to be regenerated. And seemingly, with only a couple words between them, they're going to refer to the same thing, seemingly. And then also, if we take the, if the other all-millennial approach of saying that this is them going into heaven in the intermediate state and reigning there with Christ, well, surely that's not going to happen either for the unbelievers, the rest of the dead. Um, and yet, it doesn't seem to suggest simply that they won't come to life 
for the whole of the thousand years or ever, the language seems to suggest, no, they will come to life after the thousand years. So because of verse 5 in the near context saying the very same thing, coming to life, and it clearly seemed to be a literal, physical, bodily resurrection, it seems that verse 4 is referring to the same thing. Um, so again, if, it's, if it can't be something like the, what the amillennialist proposes, it seems that it would have to be after the second coming of Christ. And then uh, there's not too much of the debate that really relates to verses 7 through 15. There, essentially, we see that at the end of that thousand-year period, Satan's released, deceives the nations again, is effective in that, brings them together uh, against the uh, saints, but the Lord decisively destroys them, and then Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. And then there's this judgment. After all the rest of the dead are raised, they're judged and likewise thrown into the lake of fire. So we've talked through these various genres. Most recently, Pastor Farrell helped us to think through prophetic literature and some of the principles for understanding prophetic and specifically apocalyptic. And then tonight, he just wanted us to take some time to look at Revelation 20, one passage that has theological significance, and try to just apply some of those principles to this passage. Admittedly, a difficult passage. Um, and yet, on the other hand, when you apply the principles, it, it does seem, in my estimation, to be fairly clear um, and to lean in the direction of the premillennial interpretation. Also, notice the way that it encourages the faithful to persevere. You know, this is the first resurrection. Blessed is the one who participates in this. Um, they'll be reigning with Christ over the earth uh, for a thousand years. So whatever kind of difficulty the readers of Revelation, those original seven churches might have been going through, whatever kind of difficulties we're going through, whatever kind of difficulties will be coming at us in the coming years, in the coming decades, there is this promise the Lord has given us that no matter what people do to us, we will be raised and we will reign with him that should motivate us to continue on in faithfulness, just like apocalyptic literature consistently does. That's the common way it works. And I've already mentioned to you these books. Again, if you, if you want them, they're out there in the book nook, and um, I'm sure Emily can help you with those or Carol. Um, so, great. I'm afraid to ask for questions, but I will... I will open it up to questions. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Ed. Yeah. Yep. So, kind of two different levels. One would be uh, the view that Israel is brought back in. So, some covenantalists can believe in a future for ethnic Israel, but brought into the church. And that would be coming only from Revelation 9 to 11. That would be based upon those texts, not the Old Testament texts. Because the Old Testament texts would seem to require an actual national geopolitical future for Israel, not merely an ethnic future for Israel. I mean, they can't simply be brought into the church. And so um, one side would say, yes, there is a future for Israel, but in the church. Um, and so therefore, it's not really an issue. Just at the end, all Israel will be saved, as um, Romans 9 to 11 says. The other side would simply say that, yeah, we have to sort of spiritualize those, those promises. And those promises, according to the New Testament, they would say, are all given to the church, appealing to texts like 1 Peter 2 that uses Israelitish language of the church now. Do you have anything to add to that?
you can probably clarify even more. <laughs> All right, any other questions? Yeah, go ahead, Rick. Yeah, the Old Testament prophets would seem to suggest that there will be other nations that are there, not all of them who would be regenerate. Um, and so it would present a situation that's very similar to the current one, only that because Christ is reigning on the earth in power, he's actually kind of effectively subduing them. But in terms of what the geography looks like, there's still other nations with their capitals and with some um, subservient kings ruling there. That's, that seems to be what the Old Testament would indicate is, is happening at the same time in its prophetic texts. Is that fair? Does anyone have anything else to add to that? Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Edenic state. Lion will lay down with the lamb, yeah, Isaiah 11. Yep. 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 No, that's all. That's all true. Yep. Those Old Testament texts are super important. Again, just to be fair to the amillennialist, trying to make sure how we appropriate those, because there's always the question of can those not fit the new Earth scenario. Could that not be where those are being fulfilled, or does that require another scenario, particularly in light of Isaiah 65, which, referring to a seemingly similar situation, calls it the new heavens and new earth? I don't think that's the best way to handle it. I do think there needs to be another category to account for it. Well, it also talks about a time in which a child would die at 100 years old. Correct. Yep. Correct. And living within this thousand year period. 
Yep, yeah, that's helpful. That certainly does indicate that there has to be some other people. It gives us somewhat of an indication as to what else is going on at the earth at the same time. Doug? Correct. Correct. They, they've got resurrected, glorified bodies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And those are some of the things I think create difficulties for the amillennialists. It just sounds kind of sci-fi-ish. Um, and so I think it's just kind of difficult to imagine. You've got like these mortals alongside these glorified people. I don't really think that's much of a difficulty. We saw Jesus in his resurrected body walking right alongside um, others. I mean, if we wonder what our resurrection body is going to look like, we look at the life of Jesus after his resurrection, before his ascension. Yep. Go ahead, Ed. Uh, verse 6, it mentions they will be priests of God yeah. and Christ, and they will reign. Yeah. Oh, that's two opposite places. Yeah. priest right now in between because christ is that priest okay yeah yeah i'm trying to remember what's the language of first peter 2 related to our current position does it call us priests now a kingdom of priests i think is what it says right oh sorry a royal priesthood is at least how the nasb translates it first peter 2 9 you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation yeah so what, what do you think about that how would that fit with that idea that we couldn't be priests right now Gotcha, yeah. So it would be a more limited sense now than it will theoretically be then. Okay, yeah. Good, all right. Well, thanks for your attention. I know some of this stuff can be kind of difficult. I hope it wasn't too difficult. I hope it helped to apply some of these principles, see what they look like being fleshed out, and if some of that debate about the timing of the millennium is new to you, help orient you to that. Again, I want to be super gracious to all millennial brothers. They are brothers indeed. Many of them are very, very faithful to the gospel. Um, and so even though I think they're wrong on this point, uh, that's okay. We can still, we can still be brothers and serve together, um, and continue studying the Bible together until we get to heaven and see it's all sorted out, right? (laughs) It all becomes clear. All right, let me close this in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we do believe it's clear. We thank you, Lord, uh, for giving us the spirit who helps to illuminate it. And yet we don't want to get lost in all of the details and miss uh, the forest for the trees. We know that you give us books like Revelation to compel us onward in faithfulness. And may you keep us, even as we talk through these things and learn hermeneutics, may it always have that ethical end, that we might persevere in faithfulness, that we might be 
faithful in evangelism, in coming alongside one another, and encouraging one another, building one another up, that we might be faithful, that your bride might be beautiful uh, when she's presented to Christ on the last day. Uh, So help us be faithful in this, even as we seek also to dig in and understand your word rightly uh, to that end. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.